Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we cover this week in provincial and municipal politics with John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. The federal government is giving new funding to continue the development of an automated tool that helps find and flag terrorist content online. Is it money well spent? And Merritt Stiles has become the first candidate to enter Ontario's NDP leadership race. She'll join us and talk about her vision for the party. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, time for our Friday roundup of politics. Uh, lots going on in Ottawa and uh, other locales, too, that we're going to cover in the next few minutes. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program John Best, who is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, great to have you back. Hopefully you're uh, doing well these days. Yeah, doing fine, Bill. Thanks. Good. Good to have you with us. Uh, I want to start with, uh, we'll, we're going to get into the uh, the politics of Ottawa in just a couple of seconds, but there is a, a tempest in a teapot that has been brewing on social media, and I know, I'm sure you know what we're talking about. And of course, it's a, a, a video that went viral uh, last week, I guess, when the, uh, the Prime Minister and his entourage were in London for the Queen's funeral. Uh, a, a day or two before the funeral, sometime that past weekend, I guess, he and some of his, uh, his people in his entourage uh, we're singing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, and uh, somebody filmed it on their phone. I suppose I don't know if it was you know supposed to happen or whatever, but they've posted it. It went viral. Uh, before I get you to comment, uh, here's a little bit of how the Prime Minister sounds sounding like Freddie Mercury. So that's it, and uh, the the feedback on this has just been phenomenal. It's crazy, the response to that. There was a a rather acerbic uh, op-ed piece in the National Post the other day written by Megan McCain, uh, who is the daughter, of course, of uh, former Senator John McCain, uh, who uh, lambasted the Prime Minister for doing that. Well, he should have been over there uh, at a funeral. Well, he was, but I guess you're not supposed to have any moments of levity, I suppose. Uh, Is this a big deal about nothing, or is this? did he make a serious gaffe here, John? Well, I think it's already faded, Bill. Um, I, I saw the same thing. My my initial reaction uh, was a little bit negative, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it was somebody tried to make the case that it was the eve of the funeral. Turns out, it was a couple of days earlier. Um, the, the gentleman that was playing the piano is a well-known uh, Quebec uh, pianist, so. You know, it, it. I think it really depends on what side of the political spectrum you're on. If you're, um, if you're convinced that uh, he's just a lightweight twit, uh, it, it certainly that reinforces it. And um, I think uh, others would uh, would say, well, you know, uh, we we've all gone to funerals and we've all shared a moment of levity uh, as a way of breaking the tension. in, in some cases, you know, and so it, I, I I call it a tie. Uh, really, uh, the people that don't like him wouldn't like anything he did, and uh, his supporters uh, are sometimes a little bit blind to some of his frivolities. Uh, I, I got the same feeling of this. I mean, uh, the, the op-ed piece that Megan McCain wrote uh, in the Post, uh, I, got, I got the sense as I read that, John, that certainly uh, she has a predisposition about Justin Trudeau. She didn't like him to begin with. You could tell that. Uh, and and there are other people that are like that, and you know they're just they've they've got a whole lot they want to say about him, and as soon as something like this happens, they just unload, and th- and that's fine. Like you say, it's it's like with that beer commercial, those that like it like it a lot, uh, and yeah. those that don't are always going to hate him, and and that's you know he's that's that's Justin Trudeau. That's just the way things are, 
as it is with a lot of political figures these days. And and you're right. I think the the furor was about 24 hours long, and then the reaction to it another 24 hours. And I don't think anybody really gives a, a, a darn about it much anymore. But it, it's interesting to see how people are just grasping onto things like that to, to try to find a channel, I guess, uh, to, for, the, for their anger and their frustration in situations like this. Well, it's, it's just another example of the, uh, you know, the really coarse uh, polarization that we're dealing with now. Uh, it's, uh, it was interesting. Um, Brian Mulroney, former prime minister, was in Toronto uh, yesterday and he was at a dinner and he was holding forth. And the, 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 the media takeaway was, wow, uh, it was only that long ago that we still had uh, people that spoke with uh, polite discourse, uh, agreed to disagree none of this venom that we see now and uh you know it really was a reminder of, of also how trivial politics has become well and that's the frustration and and i talked about that <laughs> on my commentary at 8 10 this morning on chml uh, because they've made a big buildup, and, and this was like, you know, this was going to be, this was Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, the old boxing match, you know, with the two greatest going to get together, Polyev versus Trudeau. Uh, and I watched it yesterday, and it, I thought, this is business as usual, the same attempts at wit, uh, not very good attempts at wit, uh, the same regurgitation of talking points. I mean, and, and they're trying to outwit, out, it looked like open night, Mike, at a, at a comedy club, as, as opposed to a bunch of politicians who are supposed to be solving things like supply chain issues and, and the inflation rates, et cetera. That, that, that seems to be the, 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 the foundation for them to tell their little witty jokes. And that's not what Question Period is supposed to be about. Well, there was a, I was reading one of the columns today, and, and they were just talking about that whole thing, the, 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 you know, that if we want Parliament to work better, we have to give uh, parliamentarians uh, meaningful work. And, and right now they're completely controlled by uh, these uh, unelected uh, people that work out of the PMO. Um, we talked last week about the, the diminution of cabinet ministers. Cabinet minister used to be a big deal. I'll confess right now that I don't think I could name five cabinet ministers in Canada. Uh, they've and they've faded so much uh, out of out of the picture. All they do is make spending announcements, which at one time those announcements were often made by officials. But uh, you know, uh, and and the answer is not going to be an easy one because it would really require almost a total revolt by by elected members, and there's just too many levers to keep them under control. Uh, the only time we've seen anything that looked like independent thinking was in Ontario, the election of the speaker, where I'm told that only about 15 people outside of the cabinet in the in the conservative caucus actually voted for the uh, the speaker candidate that the premier wanted. It was a it was a significant slapdown, and and it's the only opportunity in the entire session uh, where that can happen, where there's an open vote. I was talking with Michael Chong, uh, who member of parliament, of course, conservative member of parliament. He's been up there for quite a long time, a veteran, uh, a pretty level-headed guy. Uh, and uh, he had a series of reforms that he and the committee that had, he had worked on, uh, one of the parliamentary committees. And, and basically, it was to address a lot of the problems you've just talked about here. And, and it's not to take power away from the PMO. It's just to, you know, it's to empower the backbenchers. You know, the, the question period, as we know now, is all staged. It's all, you know, it's scripted. 
uh, you know, by both sides. So there, there's nothing of any consequence that usually comes of this because they know the questions that are coming and they know the answers that are coming. Uh, as opposed to, and I'm not going to suggest everybody get on you know, CPAC and watch the, uh, the the British question period, but there's a, a law in England where the uh, the minister or the prime minister, as the case might be, is required to answer the question, not to just to talk around talking points. Uh, and, and they enforce it over there. Uh, ours is a circus. And it's no wonder people get frustrated by the political process. And it's no wonder the MPs are frustrated by the process now. Well, you and I both remember when uh, when they first started televising question period. And I think as members of the media, we thought, hey, this is great. But it's it's just been totally co-opted. It's, it's just got to be the most senseless, meaningless um, uh, exercise uh, possible. I think there might be some benefit in, in taking it off television and seeing if uh, you know if questions can be presented. I, I wouldn't even have a problem, frankly, with the questions being presented in advance, uh, with the understanding that they would get meaningful answers. Uh, but what what we see now is just further trivialization of, uh, and you know, the public loses faith in our institutions when when they see these clown shows uh, going on uh, and but frankly there's you know what leader i don't know polyev he seems to be a stunt man as well so i don't see anybody uh, coming forward and saying hey here's what we need to do to to reform the way the house is operated well, and I think that's the frustration a lot of us are feeling right now. You know, we've we've got a food crisis, we've got an inflation crisis, you know, we've got a housing crisis, and and they're using those as as the punchlines for their their witticisms, as opposed to talking about policy decisions or even you know alternative policy decisions. I don't know what it is. You know, we've got international pressure right now from Germany and 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 other countries saying Canada, you got to step up. I mean, where's that debate? It's not happening. Well, the other problem is that uh, you know it's. This coarsening has resulted in in the public service also being downgraded, and uh, that's a that's a bad thing. I mean, there, there used to be a sorry about this phone. I'm trying to shut the damn thing off, um, <laughs> but uh, um, you know that that's a problem because we're not. You know, we used to get uh, you know very senior intellectuals from university. Uh, acting as deputy ministers, uh, you know, scholars, academics, people with, you know, the, the, the finance minister was the head of Clarkson Gordon accounting firm. We, we don't have those kind of people now. And uh, so the, the whole process, uh, uh, both on the public service side and on the political side, is just not, not anywhere near the caliber uh, that it was. Well, and, and uh, as I say, he... The, the reform, first of all, there's a snowball's chance of you know, in hell of getting things. Thing. It's not going to happen. As you said, nobody nobody in politics ever relinquishes power unless they're forced to. And, and so that's not going to happen in any way, shape, or form. But I, I think a lot of people are very you know, upset about the fact that this has deteriorated to the point that it has. Uh, and, and I'd like to see, for instance, you know, I'd like to see question period uh, where the government has asked questions. They answer questions properly. Uh, it doesn't always have to be the opposition leader that asks the questions, but they're not allowed to. Backbenchers aren't allowed to raise their hand and say, Mr. Speaker, I have a question. Uh, you know, you don't do that. You sit there and put your hand up to vote, and that's all you do. And that's not all MPs do. I know I'm going to get emails from some of them say, yeah, I'm on this committee and that committee. I'm talking about in question period, in the commons itself. Uh, there's got to be a better way. There is a better way, and there used to be a better way than the way they have it right now. It's just too controlled and too scripted. 
And I don't see us moving the art sticks on some of these key issues. And that's the problem. Well, even the committees, uh, they're, they're not supported uh, with uh, proper resources for research and, and things like that. So uh, a parliamentary committee, I've, I've testified at one or two when I was in the transportation uh, lobbying business. And, you know, the, the caliber of the questions you get around the table, uh, again, they're, they're just partisan. It's uh, some of the members make speeches to, and you can't even, you know, after five minutes, you where's the question? I didn't even hear it. Uh, they're, they're not well supported with research. Um, so the committee structure could be powerful, but it's not because, uh, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're just not well supported. You look at the American system, I think those committees still have some teeth because uh, there's a huge amount of staff support. And here it's, uh, it's not like that at all. No, and it's the centralization of power that I think bothers it. And it's not just this administration. This happened long before Justin Trudeau uh, was prime minister, long before he was probably an MP. And it's, it's evolved over the last number of years, and, or devolved, I suppose, into where we are right now. And, and, and we're not the better for it by any way, shape, or form. And it's just we're at a critical time right now. You know, we've talked over the last couple of weeks on this program, and you've written stories about this. I, I don't know if people understand just how precarious a position we're in right now, uh, you know, with, with Putin threatening, you know, and, and who knows what a guy like him is going to do, uh, to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which is going to demand a response from NATO. That's pretty frightening. Uh, you know, the food crisis here is very, very frightening, and it's a global crisis. And, and you know, we should be talking about solutions here instead of trying to take shots at each other, verbal shots at each other across the, the the commons. And I want to just, you know, sit down and say, hey, guys, knock it off and get down to work, would you? Uh, but, you know, they're all, it's a pox on all their houses because it's 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 a very tough time. And I'm, I'm looking for solutions here. I'm looking for leadership. And I, I'm not naive. I don't have rose-colored glasses on, John. I'm not looking for Churchill here. Uh, but instead, we're getting Benny Hill instead of Churchill. And, and it's not really helping us. Well, and it was uh, always a happy hour for Churchill. <laughs> it started about 9 a.m. So, um, well, maybe no. maybe you should start serving then, okay? Yeah, maybe maybe that's the answer because there's no question the old parliaments back in the day, there was a lot of boozing going on. Uh, some of the members, as they used to say, were unwell when they were making their speeches. <laughs> so anyway, it's uh, it's not. it'll take grassroots. Uh, it'll, it'll, the public would have to demand it. And uh, I don't, you know, somebody's got to organize it and then maybe, maybe we can see some improvement, but it's not going to come from within. That's for sure. No, and it's not going to happen anytime soon either. John, as always, thank you for this uh, great discussion as always. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may recall uh, that when the Prime Minister was earlier this week in New York City for the opening of the United Nations General Assembly, he had a meeting with a number of other world leaders, uh, one of them, of course, being uh, New Zealand Prime Minister uh, and uh, Jacinda Ardern. And uh, they were talking about something called the Christchurch Call Summit uh, and funding for what they thought was going to be a very useful tool to try to fight online terrorist activity. Uh, and uh, Canada has made a financial commitment to that, a significant one for that matter, too. Uh, $1.9 million to uh, this, what they call an analytic tool. Is it money well spent and is it going to be effective? Uh, well, the jury's out on that. I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil, of course, is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program, a former CSIS analyst, and of course, author of a number of books. 
Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, good morning, Bill. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm a little concerned about this as I started to read more about this. Uh, I, I think we're all concerned about the sort of stuff that we can see online and, and the sort of impact that can have on people uh, to maybe move them along and start doing things they shouldn't be doing. And uh, the Christchurch Call Summit, of course, uh, is, is named after the terrible incident that happened mm-hmm. in New Zealand a few years ago. Uh, but this tool they're talking about here uh, that is supposed to be helping uh, to fight uh, terrorism, uh, it's a uh, well, it's interesting. It's called a, a terrorist content analytics platform. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know what, what this is all about? A, a little bit, Bill, but to give your listeners a bit of context. So you mentioned that when I, when I was with CSIS, you know, we were doing a lot of investigations on what was then the priority, and I think it's still an important priority, and it's Islamist terrorism or jihadism. And a lot of the cases, that, the investigations that we, we had, Bill, started online. We would notice people saying things or doing things online, and that would pique our interest, and then we'd go on and do fuller investigations. And, and as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, a lot of stuff that's, that is online doesn't go anywhere. It's people venting or just idiots saying idiotic things, but at times it actually is, provides a really good lead for a really intense investigation that later on leads to the possibility of criminal charges before something happens. <laughs> you know, Bill, um, tools are only as good as those that create them, they're only as good as the information uh, upon which they're based. And they're only a good in the sense that they need to sort of lead to some demonstrable action. One thing that always concerns me about tools, and again, I, I, you know, hats off to the people that create them, because I think the effort is well, in, well intended, is do they go too far? And do they, do they identify too much material that kind of straddles that line between what's clearly illegal, which I think we all want it to be taken off, and opinion that with which we may, we may disagree, but in itself isn't illegal. So, I, again, I think tools are great, but at the end of the day, it's still humans that have to intervene to determine, is this what we really want to be doing, and is this, is this material serious enough in nature that we actually want to remove it from the Internet? Is that a subjective evaluation, though? Is it serious enough that it needs to be removed? Because that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? 100%. Let me give you a good example. So remember the, the good old Freedom Convoy from, from January and February? Now, I uh, remember we, it well, yes. <laughs> we've talked a lot about that, Bill. I, I don't happen to agree with some of the tactics or some of the views that people express during that, you know, the anti-vaxxers and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, it was still an expression of opinion, one, one with which I vehemently disagree. But in, unless you're, you know, you're going into illegal activity... Who is it that's going to decide those opinions can't be can't be registered and can't be said? I, again, I'm, I'm not try, I'm not <laughs> supportive of the freedom convoy, the anti-vaxxers, but we live in a democracy. We live in a country where we we can agree to disagree, and we have to protect that because there are far too many nations that I'm sure you are well aware of where opinion is forbidden. If you don't, you know, basically yeah. spout the government's line, yeah. it gets taken down. So again, I'm not trying well, to be alarmist We've here. seen the video from Moscow over the last 48 hours. Look what happened there when people started well, exactly. to give contrary opinions. And I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but I think that we've got to be very careful that we have to be really sure that the material we're removing is either clearly illegal in nature or a reasonable person, you know, the old reasonable person debating the law bill, a reasonable person would say, yes, that's so problematic that we have to remove it because there's a strong chance it could, could possibly lead to, le- to illegal activity down the road. And that's not an easy decision. As you said, it's very subjective. Well, and I understand monitoring, and you've always talked about, you know, making those evaluations with that. And, uh, you know, and we well, contrast Ottawa, for instance, the, you know, the, 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 the stuff that happened in February there. At the very same time, the border crossing in Alberta. 
mm-hmm. which they were apparently supposedly doing the same thing. But we found out later on that they had a cache of weapons uh, and they were planning an attack against the authorities there. I mean, so there's and I'm not suggesting that, you know, that it's apples and oranges, but I mean, it's a matter of do you homework and, and it's OK, evaluate the threat here. And, and I guess that's really what you have to do. Well, that, well, that's why you do investigations. Like I said, the RCMP would have received some information that something was possibly amiss, that something might lead to violence. They did their investigations, they did their due diligence, and they found that there were weapons there. That, to me, clearly justifies why you would start with information that perhaps is in an online environment. Then you put boots to the ground. You put you know people you know people to do the investigations to knock on doors and talk to people. You gather more intelligence. You gather more information. At the end of the day, that new information can either confirm what you thought was a problem, and, and it, like Coots was a good example, as you mentioned, or it says there's no there there, and therefore there's no need to take any action at these people. So I, I think that's why you have, again, the human element. And I know that algorithms are great and online resources are great, and this tool is probably great, but at the end of the day, unless you've got humans in charge and humans making the ultimate decision, then you run into these accusations, and well, is it really a problematic, or is it your political bias showing? I, this is a paragraph that, as I was reading about this last night, that kind of caught me, and I wanted to get your perspective on this. Uh, the tool, again, for if you're just uh, jumping onto the conversation, it's called the Terrorist Content Analytics uh, pr- Platform, and uh, Canada has. Uh, has dedicated $1.9 million uh, for this tool. Other countries are jumping on board as well. But here's what it says. It says, created by the United Nations Tech Against Terrorism, and it should back in 2020, the tool combs various corners of the internet for terrorist content and flags it for tech companies around the world to review, and if they choose, to remove it. So in other words, it's optional. You, you can say, look, I think there's a problem here. And the, the company, the platform, can simply say, nah, we disagree. And so what's accomplished? Yeah. Good point. And, and again, for your listeners, Tech Against Terrorism, I'm very familiar with him. I'm very familiar with Adam Hadley, who's quoted uh, quite a bit in that news story. I've known him for years. I think he's a really great guy. But unless you're going to mandate that private corporations that own platforms like Twitter and Facebook and things like that, unless there'll be some kind of law passed that says, thou shalt do this if we flag it for you, I'm not really sure. On the other hand, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they've, you know, they've made great strides and, and great pronouncements that they don't want to be the platforms that host this hateful material. They, it's probably in their best interest from a publicity perspective and from a reputational perspective to remove it. So even if it's not mandated under legislation, as you said, it's kind of optional. I'm guessing that the stuff that's clearly hateful, they, there'd be a vested interest for them to remove it. But again, what do you do with, with the stuff that's marginal in nature? They don't want to be seen as sort of the um, the gatekeepers of the internet and taking on information kind of subjectively, and so they're left with that conundrum: is that how far do we go as a social media platform in removing stuff that that everyone again go back to the reasonable person debate bill under law? A reasonable person would agree this this is problematic versus stuff that well it's just kind of a difference of opinion. It may not be popular, but <laughs> we have charter of protected rights in Canada to express our views. So. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about how the optionality would work there, but I guess we'll see what happens in the uh, months and years to come. Well, and from a, a technical standpoint, I'm told that this agency, this uh, the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, uh, is supposed to work separate and apart from government. In other words, government shouldn't be you know, getting their fingers all over this. So, you know, can you pass legislation on, based on information that, that isn't really the government's? I, I don't know. We're getting into technicalities and, and, you know, whose backyard are we in here right now? Uh, but you have to wonder, just is that going to have an impact on just how effective this could be? 
Yeah, it is a good question. And I, I did see that arm's length of government. And that, that's a good thing because you don't want any given oh, sure. administration to decide that this is good and this is bad. The other thing, too, Bill, that, that I think is important to point out here is the reason why we have these algorithms and these tools is the sheer volume of the information out there. And you know as well as I do. I mean, it's there's just so much. I remember you know, before I joined CSIS, as I'm sure you're aware, I worked for Communication Security Establishment, CSE, which is Canadian Signals Intelligence Organization, for 17 and a half years. And I was at once the head of data flow and, and collection. And my people were telling me, you know, this is like drinking from a fire hose, the stuff we're trying to collect to try to get the snippets of intelligence that meet our requirements. That was a 1999 bill. Can you imagine? It's like drinking from Niagara Falls right now. So this is why you can't have humans looking at screens all day because the information is just it's astronomical in size. The hope is, is that the algorithms are created properly so that they do identify the truly problematic and quasi-illegal or, or totally illegal activity, but don't identify the stuff that's maybe not that popular, but again, it's protected under charter rights. Uh, I, again, I tip my hat to people who are, who are making these efforts. I think it's important, given the, the, the sheer volume of information out there, but I think a lot of these things have to sort of uh, stand the test of time and, and see how they work uh, going forward. Well, and again, how how are the platforms going to respond to this? Uh, now, you saw the stat, I'm sure, uh, that uh, in the last report, was, uh, which I guess dates back to November of last year, uh, Tech Against Terrorism said 94% of the content uh, that the tool had alerted uh, was ultimately taken down. Ultimately, I saw, I'm sure there was a back and forth on that, too. Uh, so I guess, I guess they are paying some attention to this right now. Uh, the, con- the concern, I guess, there is, like you say, it's, it's subjective. Uh, evaluation of this and, and who, where, what do you hone in on? I mean, is, is this a, a great big umbrella here? Cause as you've talked about, uh, you know, the, the, you we're very concerned about jihadist terrorism. And I know that's one of the things you worked on extensively at CSIS. Uh, but I'm getting the more I read about this. They seem to be focusing a lot more on, on what mm-hmm. they call right wing extremism here in North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another great point, Bill, obviously my bias is because you said I worked on this extreme. I've written six books on the topic. This is, you know, what I, what I know best. The, the, the beauty, if I can use that term, of Islamist terrorist content is it's so obvious. You know, you see a, a group that, you know, an individual who supports ISIS, he puts the flag up there, he says all kinds of stupid stuff. ISIS is a listed terrorist entity. This is a no-brainer. You take that stuff down. The problem with the far right, writ large, is that, first of all, it's a dog's breakfast of groups. You know, some are white nationalists, some are white supremacists. You've got some, con- some conspiracy theorists, some QAnon in there. It's a real, as you said, use the word umbrella. Really hard to define. Um, there are very few groups listed as right-wing terrorist groups under Canadian legislation. Therefore, it's a lot harder, I think, to determine whether something truly meets the criteria of material to take down that, that comes under that far-right umbrella, whereas for the jihadis, for the Islamic extremists, it's, it's so simple because these people, they all say the same things. They've been saying the same things for 20 or 30 years now. We, we're well, we're well uh, familiar with the message. They kind of f- follow a formula, and therefore the decision to take down the material is much easier. Um, yeah, there's been concern raised about the far right, and I've, I, I certainly it's, it, it's a legitimate concern. I, I kind of push back on exactly how serious it is, but that's just my, my personal opinion. But I do think that it'll be a much more difficult because the far right views, even in Canada, sometimes again back to freedom convoys. Some call them terrorists. Some call them people voicing their opinions. Where 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 do you where, where's your judgment in that? Where do you draw that line? That's why it's harder, I think, for tech companies to make decisions on far-right material, whereas the jihadi stuff, as I said, is a complete no-brainer. Anybody can, can see this stuff as terrorist in nature that must be removed from online platforms. Well, and again, where's that evaluation come in? And I mean, you know, because a lot of these people we used to just categorize as fringe groups uh, that had these, you know, ridiculous views, or we consider them to be ridiculous anyway in the mainstream. Uh, 
you know, but is is that line in the sand when they decide to take action on some of them? Uh, case in point, uh, no, no, their name escapes me. Though. The the self proclaimed queen of Canada. Who, oh yeah, I know we do. Talk- yeah, 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 we've been talking about before. Uh, weird stuff that they talk about. You know, you don't need to pay taxes. All this sort of thing. Uh, and and I guess you know they're monitoring that and thinking, boy, this is this is strange. Not really what we want. Uh, but when action is taken, when they decided, okay, I want you guys to go to Peterborough and arrest all the police, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's you've got to you've got to move on that. I mean, that's that's an action item that I guess you have to respond to. But when it comes to terrorism, Bill, the legislation is quite clear in Canada. So Section eighty three point zero one talks about serious acts of violence that are either planned or carried out. Um, you know, is arresting police in Peterborough a serious act of violence? I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I laugh at that because. Any idiot who's going to go arrest police is not going to end well for them at the end of the day. But, you know, so whatever Queen Dudulo says, unless, you know, she inspires people or directs people to carry out extreme acts of violence that are carried out or planned for ideological, political, or religious reasons, which is what the legislation says, it's not terrorism. And it's not, it's not really a threat to society. And, you know, we've been going back and forth this morning, and you're absolutely right. This is a, a really dodgy area where just because a, a view was unpopular... Uh, although I think a lot of Canadians would, would, would not like to pay taxes to the federal government, as, as Queen Dudulo asked us not to, unless it's actually a threat of violence, I'm not sure we should be taking action to, to remove the material, because then it, essentially it's your word against mine, and, and just because you don't like what I say, does it mean I don't have the right to say it? As long, again, as long as it's not advocating violence. Who gets the information? That's one of the other questions we always ask when there's going to be information gathering like this. Uh, is, is it public information? I mean, this is done by a, a company. But and, and by the way, I, as we've talked about before, the platforms themselves tell us that they're doing their own checks on, on what's, yeah. uh, what content is on there, too. So there's a body of information here right now, which, which I assume they're going to archive. Uh, you know, they don't just say, okay, we scrub that one. Let's start again tomorrow. Uh, where does it go? Who gets it? Who gets to see it? And, and can the authorities use information like this uh, in, in investigations, press charges based on this information? How far can you go here? Well, I would say, technically, if you put something online, it's in the public domain. And that, that means you've basically given your consent. If it's in the public domain, then anybody can see it. Um, I did notice in the article that they're going to archive the stuff for use by academics and researchers to take a look at you know trends and, and, and shifts in, in, in uh, uh, violent extremists or terrorist content online, which is good. We always need more research in that regard. But, you know, when I worked in CSIS, we always loved when somebody from the public picked up the phone and said, hey, I've come across this piece of information or there's somebody I know who's been engaged in certain activities that I'm worried about. I think that, you know, this warrants looking into. Like that's basically a, a concerned member of the public who says, this, is, this has come across my radar. I'm not qualified to deal with it. You guys are the security intelligence or law enforcement, whatever. This is in, in your wheelhouse. You know, maybe you should have a look at it. And, and, and many times, those leads led to, led to serious investigations, which, in the, at the end of the day, actually ended up in criminal charges. So you love that. So this information, again, is public information. So if people notice it and are really worried about it, they've been you know, seeing developments over time, if they share that with law enforcement and security intelligence, I don't see why it can't be used. It's because you have essentially given your consent to post something in a public domain. To me, it's fair game. I, I, unless I'm missing something on the law bill, I'm certainly no lawyer or legal expert. But to me, it should be it should be information that's available to our protectors, so they can use to locate individuals who may, you know, um, plan acts of violence and stop them before they do it. Because no one wants to sort of mop up later after the act's been done. They expect CSIS and the RCMP and local law enforcement to stop these acts of violence before they happen. And so, I think the information would be very beneficial to help them do that. If if they're going to st- 
well, they are doing this already. This is ju- something they're jumping onto here. Uh, is this going to just drive those groups deeper underground, under the black net, the dark net? It's always a risk. It's it's the same thing, but, you know, when we were at CSIS, I mean, one of the things we would often do is just knock on doors and say, hey, look at Bill. We've been looking at your stuff online, buddy, and you might want to tone it down a bit because it's, it's, it's reached our attention. There's always the risk that Bill's going to say, hey, I guess, you know, CSIS is on my case. I'm going to go into the dark web onto channels that are, you know, password protected or encrypted, whatever kind of thing. That's always uh, a possibility. But thankfully, uh, most people aren't that smart and, or don't have the technical wherewithal to do that. And they sort of, they, they maintain their presence on, on the easily accessible platforms and spheres that we can still exploit. But it, it's, like, it's like any law enforcement investigation, Bill. If you're investigating the Hells Angels organized crime, you're always taking a risk that if they find out what you're doing, that they might revert to a, a manner or a, a vehicle which you can't monitor as easily. That's the risk of doing investigations when you work in law enforcement and security intelligence. Well, uh, proof will be in the details, I guess, as this thing rolls out in the next little while. Uh, Phil, thanks for jumping on today. Really appreciate you getting some clarity into this. Have a great weekend. You too, Bill. Take care. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, from CSIS, uh, ex-member of CSIS, of course, and security expert. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Politics, uh, obviously, on everybody's mind because of what's going on and the things that are impacting our lives on a daily basis. We've talked about uh, food uh, crises and, and, and the pressure it's putting on every family in one way, shape, or form. Uh, we've got a lot of things going on. Inflation, of course, driving that. Interest rates are on the increase. So there's a lot happening. And uh, politicians at the federal level trying to uh, get their heads around that and try to find some solutions. I wish they'd stop the little nitpicking that they do and, and simply get into it and start talking about some solutions. But here in Ontario, uh, well, the debate will continue. We have a majority government, of course. Doug Ford won re-election with a majority government. Uh, and as a result of that particular election, uh, both the NDP and Liberal leaders uh, stepped down. And uh, so both will be looking for new leadership in the next little while. Uh, the first person to actually de- officially declare uh, for the leadership of the new Democratic Party here in Ontario uh, is Merritt Stiles, MPP for Davenport, and also the education critic for Ontario's oppos- official opposition. Uh, and she joins us here at the Bill Kelly Show to talk about uh, her new candidacy. Uh, Merritt Stiles, welcome back to the program. It's good to talk with you again. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the, 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 the stuff that went into your head here, all the things that are happening. It's been a rather tumultuous few months in Ontario politics right now. Uh, what led you to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be the one. I want to lead this party now. Well, look, uh, you know, I, I'm really excited about kicking off the campaign and and it has been, it has been a tumultuous time. And it's also a really important moment in Ontario. You know, we, We've got this conservative government uh, in power right now, and I think uh, a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people in this province are struggling. They're dealing with, you know, increased cost of living. They're dealing with uh, ERs that are, where they're having to wait for 12 hours and shutting down. Uh, this is not normal. This is not normal. And one of the things that really gets me is I feel like a lot of people in our province have been conditioned to think that this is normal by government after government. I, I think they've been taken for granted. I heard it. I hear it every day from people that I'm talking to. And I, I think it's time for change. So I really feel like we can make that change and provide Ontarians with a really positive view of, of you know, the kind of Ontario we want to see, that we shouldn't have to settle for less. Uh, and so I'm really excited to get that, that going. 
Can I ask you, this is a, a technical question, but it's just, it's just something that kind of jumped out at me. Uh, it's going to take a long time to elect a new leader, select a new leader, we should yeah, say. Right. Uh, you know, your members have up to December of this year to actually declare whether or not they want to be uh, the leader of this party. You've already jumped in there and no one mm-hmm. else has it yet, although a few, I know there's a bunch of them kicking the tires. But is that too long, Merritt, to actually get this mm-hmm. process done and get moving? You know, our, our party, like our members decided that they wanted to have a little bit more time. And I think the reason for that is because it's a big deal. It's a big decision. And we want to use this as well as an opportunity to reach out to uh, not just people who are already members, but to other folks. You know, maybe people who haven't ever voted NDP before or or who used to be members and, and then just kind of got, you know, other things came up in their lives. Like, now is the time, right? This is the moment. And so I, I think it's actually a great opportunity uh, to have a, a lot of conversations with people all across the province. It takes time. It's a big, it's a big province uh, to move around. And, and I want to get into every corner uh, and, and listen to people. So I actually think it's a great opportunity. Um, and I think that in the meantime, and, and certainly every day for the next uh, for these next four years, uh, the NDP has to continue, and we will continue, to fight for Ontarians uh, to make sure that uh, we can limit the damage of this government. Uh, some people thought this past provincial election was going to be your time, and the NDP yeah. could actually form government. And, and the polls were looking pretty positive there for a while. It didn't turn out to be the case. As a matter of fact, you ended up losing seats uh, where people thought you were actually going to win government. Uh, does the party need to recalibrate? You know, I think this is the time. Look, first of all, I want to say, um, you know, Andrea, Andrea Horvath, a great leader, built our party up so much. You know, I would not be elected in 2018 without Andrea's leadership. And I think, by the way, that it's a really exciting news for Hamilton that she's running there to be mayor. But I also think, you know, that in this that, that there were some issues in that election, and, and, and I think they were across the board, right? It's a tough time the last few years for people in the pandemic. Almost a million people stayed home and didn't vote. And to me, boy, that when, when, when people didn't get out to vote, and I could feel it in the election. I could feel that people were not feeling motivated, you know? And I got this feeling that people really don't think their vote matters anymore. And, you know, some of that is the way our electoral system works, you know? Um, but a lot of that is just that people are tired, and it's going to take a lot to to inspire people and to again like convince people that there's actually more. You know, I I moved to Ontario from Newfoundland, oh my gosh, 30 years ago to go to school, and I stayed here because there were jobs and opportunities, and I knew that it was going to be better for me here. I could get a good job, uh, you know, and I could I could live, I could raise a family on a on a on a you know working class middle class salary, right? But these days. It doesn't seem possible for a lot of people, right? And and I think we need to get back to that that promise of Ontario. What is it that you know people worked so hard for for so many generations? We should not be in a province right now. We should not have to choose, um, you know, whether or not you know we 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 risk sitting in our emergency room for twelve hours when our kid is sick. Um, that's just not normal. And I'd like to change things. The other concern about uh, the election, too, when we start, you know, rehashing that and going uh, through the ashes here of, mm-hmm. of what should have happened and what actually did happen, yeah. 
an awful lot of labor support uh, that the NDP has traditionally counted on went over to the Doug Ford government, uh, uh, mm-hmm. two major unions, Uniform and Leuna, uh, which had traditionally mm-hmm. been supporters, uh, and other skilled trade unions went over there as well. Now, I know that I know that the public sector unions were still behind you and there were endorsements. We get that. Uh, but it seemed anyway, Merritt, as if the, the NDP mm-hmm. was bleeding support uh, which from part of your traditional base. Mm-hmm. How do you get that back? Yeah, you know, well, look, I mean, we're a party of labor, and it is in our roots, right? It, it's just like, you know, that's the roots of Hamilton, that, that, that the NDP. Uh, you know, we have strong roots in Hamilton. We have strong roots in the labor movement. And I really do believe those connections are still very, very strong. But no question, you know, Doug Ford wants to convince people, and, and he has been successful to some extent in trying to convince some people that he represents them and they're wor- and working people. But, but he, he, he's not, his policies don't help working families. In fact, there's a reason that people are struggling more today than they have been for a long time. And, and you're right, you know, we, we lost some seats in that last election um, that we should not have lost. Um, and we can't be losing more seats. We can't be losing seats um, in, in communities, especially where, you know, regular people, working people depend on us. Um, we need to win a lot more of those seats, in fact. And, and so I think this is, this is where we, we are going to see a shift, I think, in the next few years. I think people are counting on us, uh, and there's going to be a lot more suffering until we can push back against Ford and his conservatives and get Ontario moving again, get Ontario growing again. Um, and I think that message is going to really connect. And I got to tell you, I'm hearing from a lot of people who are saying to me, you know, I haven't, I haven't felt inspired in a while. Um, and I was really feeling like my, my vote doesn't matter anymore, too. And I, and I think we got to give them a reason to vote. So absolutely, I'm thinking about that. Those roots are really important. They're critical. And they're part of my values as a new Democrat. They're really part of who I am, too. But you talked about labor being part of the foundation for the party. I, mm. Clearly, I don't, can't disagree with that. That's the, history tells us that. Uh, but, you know, when, I, I never thought I'd ever see a conservative prime minister standing up at a podium mm-hmm. with the head of uniform. Uh, Joe Mancinelli and, and other people from mm-hmm. Leuna have traditionally supported the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, mm-hmm. They went with Doug Ford. And I guess I, I can only, you know, rationalize it well this way. He's promised them jobs. He's going to build highways. Mm-hmm. He's, that's jobs for three, four, five years. And I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He had this epiphany where all of a sudden he's now a sudden behind electronic vehicles. Uh, where I mean, remember you, you were there the first uh, time he got elected. First thing he did was cancel all the programs, the rebate programs, took the charging stations out. I, I don't know how he had this transformation, but he's had it. He was he was basically he was jumping in and he, he's mowing your grass. And a lot of people said, "Yeah, okay, we'll go with him then." Well, I, I mean. My my uh, my uh, my family, you know, we were talking about this the other day, actually, and I think, you know, on some level, it's like, wow, well, you know, good good for you, Doug, for for waking up and realizing that electrical vehicles are are the future, you know, and and that and that actually we need to we need to create good green jobs in this province. There's a really great opportunities uh, there. Uh, I'm glad you woke up and figured that out, but I don't trust this government. I don't trust uh, Ford to to keep really prioritizing this, the the. Uh, the needs of families and working people and regular people, right? This is a government that has, you know, while they talk like that, they turn around and they, they, they're given, you know, their, their, their donors, you know, great big gifts at left, right and center. I mean, the, 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 the housing that they're building isn't housing that real people are going to be able to afford. So we need to build more of that, but we need to build housing that's truly affordable for people, right? We need to, uh, 
you know, we need to increase our, the number of decent, really good jobs out there, right? You, you should be able to, you should be able to raise a family, like I said, on a, on a, on a decent job, on a, on a working class job, right? Um, and, and right now people are paying, so what, 60% of your paycheck to cover rent? I mean, this is, this is not, this is not normal for Ontario and it shouldn't, we should not settle for this. So uh, I'm glad Doug's woken up to, um, you know, to understanding the importance of those construction jobs. Like my riding where I, where I represent in Toronto, uh, my riding uh, has the highest number of uh, people working in construction anywhere in the province. Um, it's mostly Lyuna workers, right? Lyuna members. Um, these are, these are folks I work with every day. And I've seen how their lives are not improving, right? How things are costing more for them, how they're struggling, and how they look at, like, they were able to buy maybe a house, a small little house in, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And they can't, they can't, they can't stand the fact that their kids or grandkids are never going to be able to have um, that option in their life. And, so why and, why and then though? I, I know it's, this is not a rhetorical question. I know your t- your time is tight, uh, sure. but those same Leona families, many of them voted for the Conservatives this time around, as opposed to NDP. I'm sure you saw the editorial that was in the Globe and Mail from Robin Urbach sure. the other day that questioned the relevance of the NDP going forward from a political standpoint. Now she's talking a lot about the federal party, but it, you know some people are transposing that onto the mm-hmm. Ontario party too, and said are, are they even relevant here in 2022? Mm-hmm. Well, you know. Um, we're, we're the official opposition uh, still here in Ontario. We've got a strong, uh, strong team, um, and we're uh, going to be a force, like we were in the last four years, uh, pushing back and, and making sure that Ford doesn't get to make life more difficult for families. Like we're, That's our job in the next four years. But we also have to build an alternative. And I actually think what I'm seeing is that more and more people are actually coming in behind us. They're, they're excited about the opportunity, and, and they know that you know ford promises a lot but he hasn't really been delivering and i think that's going to be you know at the end of the day you know he's talking the talk but the costs of everything are rising and people's paychecks aren't keeping up so i i think that that a lot more people i mean i think that this last election um i think people were were feeling i mean let's be clear too like ford did not win i mean he got a majority of seats but he did not get a majority of the vote and and I think a lot of people um, are going to be are disappointed already with the, with what's happened. You know, as soon as he was elected, he turns around and starts, you know, passes laws that are going to force our aging family members into nursing homes that they don't want to go to. Um, uh, you know, listen, I, I, right? and we could spend we could spend two hours talking <laughs> on that. You're you're going right into my wheelhouse about the things we've been talking <laughs> about. But I I know your time is tight. I know you got a lot of things yeah. you want to do today. Uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, congratulations on uh, making the decision to get into the race, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again further down the road. Thanks again, Merritt. Thank, thank you so much. Take care. Merritt Stiles, MPP for Davenport, and of course the education critic for the uh, NDP opposition, and the first candidate to officially. Uh, declare to be the next leader of the Ontario NDP. Long way to go, though. It's going to be next spring before they actually uh, pick a leader. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.